This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the show that delivers insights on federal government programs, people, and operations. I'm Mimi Gerges. In the wake of the September 11th attacks, the National Counterterrorism Center was created to identify and stop terror threats to the U.S. Christine Abizade is the director of the center. Christy, welcome to the program. Thank you. Happy to be here. You know, as I just said, the NCTC was created in the wake of the September 11th attacks. The 9-11 Commission said about those attacks that they were, quote, a shock, but they should not have come as a surprise. Mm -hmm. All that information was there. It just wasn't all together in the right place. Mm -hmm. How does the, the center address that problem? Well, we do it in a number of ways. The most important is that we serve as a place across the United States government to fuse all source intelligence, both intelligence on the foreign side, the domestic side. We have analysts and, and um, assignees from across the interagency that all sit there and use their expertise from across their different agency experiences to understand all the terrorism information in the United States government's holdings and to understand where the threats might be coming from. So what are you doing to make sure that that intelligence gets to the right place, doesn't fall through the cracks, and that all the dots are connected before an attack? I mean, that's fundamentally our mandate, right? Um, understanding all source intelligence, looking both up and down the chain of acquisition, digging into different operational elements, engaging with our counterparts across the intelligence community. We have to have a broad view uh, and insight across the world on what our terrorist adversaries are doing. And so being able to do that and being able to engage and broker uh, across the interagency the right conversations about what the intelligence is telling us and what the strategic trend lines need to be responded to, that's really key for us at the National Counterterrorism Center. So what makes the National Counterterrorism Center fundamentally different from all the other intel uh, agencies around the federal government that are also analyzing that data and um, trying to understand it? Well, first of all, we're the one place that all that data comes together. We have unique access across the federal government into various aspects of the counterterrorism challenge. But also, we're the one place where all the different agencies come and sit to do analysis together. We have analysts from CIA, we have analysts from DHS, we have ODNI cadre that are part of the National Counterterrorism Center. You can swivel your desk and have an interagency conversation just by sitting at the counter National Counterterrorism Center and looking at the kind of information we're dealing in. So um, we also have a very important independent role we don't have an operational arm at the National Counterterrorism Center. We have a very objective view about all the information that's coming into us. And so it gives us a, an ability to have sort of a unique insight into the strategic value of all the information that's coming into U.S. government holdings. Counterterrorism is no longer the driving force of American national security. So how has the Counterterrorism Center pivoted in response to that change? So first of all, I think it's great credit to the counterterrorism community that counterterrorism is no longer the driving force of our national security. Um, I, I, you know, credit the work that has happened over the last two decades after 9/11 from this very diverse, very integrated and collaborative community that has allowed us to deal with a threat that, you know, I would characterize as less acute in the homeland than at any time since 9/11. 
And so as we in the National Counterterrorism Center look to evolve, still create that foundational sense of security for Americans so that we're defending against our terrorist adversaries, we also are trying to do it in the most efficient and effective way possible. And so when you look at a model like the National Counterterrorism Center, where all different elements of the federal government come together to do work in a collaborative fashion, there are efficiencies and optimizations that happen along the way. And I think we're actually better positioned now than probably at any time since our founding to fulfill the mandate of being that singularly focused organization that can provide that foundational support on counterterrorism while the rest of the government can go and do other very important national security issues. So how would you say the foreign terrorism threats have changed over the past 20 years? It's interesting, you know, um, you look at how Al-Qaeda on 9-11 was a very uh, hierarchically managed, centrally located organization in one part of the world. Um, we've seen it diffuse over the last 21 years, in, in part, in large part, because of the significant counterterrorism pressure we were able to bring to bear in Afghanistan and Pakistan, um, and then other places where the threat uh, evolved to. Now, the diffusion has made it, I think, a less urgent and acute threat to the homeland here. It's made it more difficult for them to hierarchically manage uh, attack planning. But it's also created new challenges and new complexities for us in the counterterrorism community as you see spawns of al-Qaeda like ISIS emerge in Iraq and Syria, different branches uh, spreading out in parts of Africa. And that diffusion creates a vast amount of territory that we need to cover as an intelligence community to understand where that next threat is coming from. So then how are you innovating? How are you adapting to address those changes? So first and foremost, technology has to be part of my job. Technology modernization is critical for us to look across, again, those vast holdings of the United States government and enable us to, in an automated way, discover threats and then dig into whether those threats present an urgent challenge to us here in the homeland. And so there is a fair amount of machine learning, artificial intelligence, automation, big data analysis that all has to come together if we're gonna be the unique center that holds the unique value of counterterrorism information for the United States government. We've gotta find a way to do it more effectively, more efficiently. Technology is a key role. Technology modernization is essential for us. All right, Christy, stand by. We'll continue in a bit. Great. Thanks. Coming up next, more of my conversation with Christine Abizade, director of the National Counterterrorism Center. We'll be right back. I'm back with Christine Abizade. She's the director of the National Counterterrorism Center. Christy, now that U.S. troops have pulled out from Afghanistan, has that crippled our ability to see and collect uh, intelligence information? Yeah, I mean, objectively, we are not going to have the same intelligence footprint in Afghanistan as we did before the fall of Kabul. That's absolutely true. I think it's been acknowledged across the intelligence community and intelligence community leadership. I wouldn't call us crippled. Uh, we are a very effective intelligence organization across the, the United States government, bringing all uh, elements of our national power to bear in uh, being able to collect the kind of information we need to understand strategic threats. So um, I don't think we're blind in Afghanistan, but we are certainly less well positioned from an intelligence collection perspective than we had been when we had significant boots on the ground. 
you know, an example of U.S. intelligence success was the death of al-Qaeda's leader, Ayman al-Zawahri. Uh, what are you able to tell us about why that operation was so successful? So, I mean, there were so many things that uh, I just really credit a, that collaborative CT enterprise for having been able to get to the point where we could identify Zawahri's location and take a strike that, uh, that took only him out, avoided all collateral damage, and really, uh, for, my, for my part, eliminated a strategic and symbolic threat that was essential uh, to protect the country. You know, you look at the role that Zawahri was playing in the years that he led al-Qaeda, he was an important strategic figure for the group after Osama bin Laden's death, he, even before that. And the kind of strategic direction he was providing to this diverse and diffuse network that I described before was important for the kind of prioritization that that network has had against the United States. So you feel like that organization has fundamentally changed because of his death? I think it's different. Um, you know, the affiliate structure that he led is still pretty resilient, actually. You've got al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, al-Qaeda elements that are in the Sahel and North Africa. You've got al-Qaeda elements that are in Iraq and East Africa. Those elements are still very much present and present a challenge to us as the United States government. But the ties that bind them that were really resonant in uh, Ayman al-Zawahiri's leadership, I think that is weakened after his removal from the battlefield. And you think al-Qaeda and ISIS still pose a threat to the United States? I do, absolutely. Um, you know, we are constantly monitoring uh, across the intelligence community for where the threats might be coming from. And al-Qaeda and ISIS remain the main challenge for us from a counterterrorism perspective as we look across the international landscape. Part of your mission is to understand the causes of um, Islamic or extremist violence, let me say. What's the answer? What's the solution? Well, it's interesting. It, it very much depends in so many ways on the local environment and the local conditions. You know, I talk about this affiliate structure and the diffusion of the Al-Qaeda and ISIS networks across the world. That diffusion has been enabled by different underlying conditions that exist in these different locales. So what is driving the Al-Qaeda expansion in Mali, for instance, is going to be very different than what has happened in Yemen. But understanding that at a level uh, that is not just about counterterrorism, counter but is about fundamental governance issues, corruption, the ability of you know, governments to provide for their people, those are always essential components for whether a terrorist organization can thrive. What's the center's role in combating domestic extremism? So we play a supporting role to the lead organizations for the United States government in this space, which is the FBI, DOJ, and the Department of Homeland Security. Now, you know, I've described NCTC as having a very important domestic and foreign intelligence mission that fuses all that so we do not become stovepiped and we can see the totality of the threat that's focused here in the homeland. That does come into play when we talk about domestic violent extremism. Um, but it doesn't put us as the primary organization focused on that. We support our um, lead federal agencies in, in that respect, and we try and do so in a way that focuses especially on the transnational aspects of the challenge, um, which, you know, is resonant most in the aspect of the challenge that focuses on racially and ethnically motivated violent extremism. You also work on the, at the state and local level. 
explain that. How do you do that? So we do that in support, again, of FBI and DHS. Uh, those are their key interlocutors. But you know, one of the key foundings of NCTC was that we are able to disseminate terrorism information that's in the United States government's holdings to those that need it. When you think about where a terrorist attack is most likely to happen, who the first responders are that are going to need the information to deal with that, or those that could be the most effective at preventing it, state and locals are the key to protecting the homeland, protecting our communities. So we want to make sure we're getting information to them as part of our key role of disseminating the U.S. government's holdings in a way that enables them to be better postured against the threat. When you're looking at your, your mission as a whole, do you work with tech companies? Do you work with social media platforms in tracking terrorists and, and their online activities? So in general, private sector outreach, I think, is an important part of enabling that information sharing mandate that we have at NCTC. And yes, tech company outreach is an important factor here, especially because if you look at the way that terrorist organizations communicate, how they organize today less physically and more um, in a virtual and online way, the kind of information that we have about how those adversaries are exploiting today's technology environment is important. And so we do engage in information sharing from that perspective. And just really quickly, what's the biggest threat to the United States, terrorism threat? So Al-Qaeda and ISIS remain intent on attacking the United States. I think we've done a really good job as the United States government in making ourselves a harder target over the last 20 years. Um, but we have to keep our eye on the ball. And so we're going to stay focused on those terrorist threats, even as we see these evolving challenges here domestically in the homeland, uh, dealing with lone actors and otherwise. Uh, but we cannot let the terrorist threat evolve in ways that go faster than the United States government can keep up with. And so we're here to make sure that doesn't happen. Christy, thanks so much for being on the program. And, and thanks for your work over at NCTC. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Coming next, a government program is turning to Silicon Valley to equip the Department of Homeland Security with new and emerging technologies. The director of that program shares some of the program's successes. We'll be right back. The Department of Homeland Security is looking to smaller entrepreneurs and emerging tech industries to improve the work and services of the federal government. Melissa O oh is the Managing Director for DHS's Science and Technology Directorate, Silicon Valley Innovation Program. Melissa, welcome to the program. Thanks, Mimi. Great to be here. You're actually located in Silicon Valley. Was that a conscious choice to be located there? Yes, it definitely was a conscious choice for DHS to establish a footprint and to be able to reach out to entrepreneurs right where they are. Um, and I'm originally from the Silicon Valley, so it made a whole lot of sense for us to really um, engage with the community um, where they sit and where they operate. So tell me about the mission of the directorate. So the Science and Technology Directorate, which we fall under um, at DHS, is the R&D arm for the department, as well as the science advisor. My role um, as the managing director for the Silicon Valley Innovation Program is to reach out to the startup community, entrepreneurs, small businesses, and help them understand, hey, look, we've got challenges and pain points that may be very similar to the commercial technologies you're currently developing. Uh, is there a way for us to partner with you so that DHS could be a customer of yours as well? So 
Um, we've been really actively working towards um, introducing new innovative technologies into DHS and are super excited to be able to deploy these new technologies um, with, our, with our operational partners. But what differentiates that program from similar programs in the federal government like the Small Business Innovation Research Program, the SBIR? Yeah, great question. Um, because we're focused on commercial technologies and commercial startups, we really are looking for the breadth of solutions that may be out there that can meet the DHS challenges. So we are actually uh, um, able to uh, fund international startups as well. And we have a number of international companies in our portfolio. So how do you define a startup though? Are, are, are there any um, eligibility requirements? Oh yeah, absolutely. For us, for SVIP, we really wanna hyper-focus on those really nimble small businesses. So our eligibility requirements are you have to have less than 200 employees um, to be eligible, not have had a federal government contract um, across uh, across the, the US government space um, under a million dollars within the last uh, um, uh, 12 months. And so we really are focused on getting to those companies that have not reached into the government because of various barriers to entry, um, whatever it is that may have prevented them from really wanting to work with the government. We are uh, we make it so that um, it is much easier uh, to work with us, much easier to get a contract, much faster than, than your standard government contract. So um, it allows those small businesses to find a way into the government. And we're super excited because 40% uh, of our companies um, were never going to touch the government space before and uh and and now they actually have follow-on government contracts some in the some in the on the order of eight figures so really so, excited for them to be successful melissa when you say much faster let's talk about that you know let's talk about the process and and the speed that you can get one of these products to an agency yeah so um our contracting process is similar to a commercial contract where we put our pain point out there we get them under contract in uh, on average 45 to 60 days and by uh, by bringing them in, it really makes it much simpler for them to um, uh, work with our work with our operational agencies to adapt and iterate their products. And within 12, uh, 24 to 36 months, we have a product ready for deployment. Um, and uh, I'm happy to say that we are able to say that a number, uh, we have several uh, technologies that are already deployed in the field uh, as a result of um, a much faster time frame from R&D to uh, to the field. So give me an example of one of the projects that you funded that has really um, improved the lives of everyday Americans. Yeah, so one of the one of the technologies um, is uh, a, a company that's focused on machine learning technologies. And um, because of this uh, increasing need for us to work with more and more data, it makes it even more challenging to be able to identify whether um, you know, the same entity is the same entity versus a different entity. Um, and so uh, take, for example, on the commercial side, you've got manufacturing of auto parts. Um, how, how do contracts uh, know um, what whether or not they're having duplicative contracts? Well, we've been able to actually bring that technology into Customs and Border Protection, and they've been able to optimize their procurement and identify duplicative contracts, um, make sure that we're making um, uh, efficient contracting decisions so that we're not um, funding too many contracts with the same requirements. Um, and I'm happy to say that our uh, Customs and Border Protection recently awarded a non-competitive sole source to that company because they went through our competitive program. Um, and they've done that acquisition uh, and it took um, four to five years to get that in place and it's deployed on their network 
and in use right now. And how do you identify, you talked about the pain points, how do you identify what those are and what technologies you really need to focus on? Right, it's a bit of a, a more of an art than a science. It really is understanding what's available in the commercial tech startup space. Um, and that's through engaging venture capitalists, entrepreneurs, and really being in that, in that world to understand what they're developing. And then also uh, talking to my uh, operational partners, Coast Guard, Customs, TSA, to understand, well, where are your pain points and finding a, a good match of where they're ready to uh, acquire and deploy technology and the companies are in a position to apply that technology to their needs. And Melissa, finally, very briefly, what, what has been the success rate? I mean, how, how beneficial has this program been to the federal government? Uh, in terms of our success rate, we, we count our successes as what technologies have commercialized with DHS's requirements baked in so that anyone in the federal government can acquire it. And I can say that all of the technologies that, we've, that have graduated through phase four of our program have commercialized that technology. And at least nine of those technologies have been uh, transitioned to our operational customers. All right, Melissa, thanks so much for being on the program. Nice to talk to you. Thanks for having me. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website at govmatters.tv. And you can listen to our Government Matters podcast, available on all major listening platforms. You can also find every podcast episode on our website at govmatters.tv slash podcast. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the federal government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges. Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems. I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government? What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people in ways that are not traditional, uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today and has, as we've known them for a lot of years, have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated network facilities. We have been taking this different approach to connecting all of our customers through the use of broadband, originally satellite broadband, but now managed networks and managed broadband services that include cable, include DSL, include wireless, include uh, traditional fiber and, uh, and, and satellite, of course. Well, tell me about the HughesNet Gen 5, because that's the largest high-speed satellite internet service. It is, it is. It's a very exciting service. We launched it um, back in 2016, and even an earlier version of it, Gen, which was known as Gen 4, that are called high-throughput satellites. And these are satellite services that took satellite connectivity and speed and capability and capacity to a whole nother level. This is a service that we sell to our consumers. We sell it in a more robust fashion to um, our industry partners and customers, as well as the government. Well, tell me what you're doing for the federal government with relationship to artificial intelligence and machine learning. We use our artificial intelligence capabilities to drive innovation with respect to customer care, customer delivery, 
the use of understanding what our partners are capable of supplying in terms of broadband uh, services. And we use them to sort of understand in a proactive way, in in a speedy way, what could be predictive behavior of the network and use that predictive behavior to monitor the networks and monitor the network services. It takes sort of the guesswork out of it because we use the artificial intelligence to to give us more information than we would be able to get manually. And I understand, Tony, that you're also working on um, critical network backup and emergency connectivity for first responders. Obviously, that's going to be more and more of an issue. Can you tell me a little bit about what Hughes does in that arena? Well, we've had a great deal of success in this area, and we've been pleased and, and honored to, to serve the particularly the FEMA community and the emergency response community with rapid deployment of satellite technologies where all of a sudden those technologies because of a disaster are no longer uh, capable of, of connecting people. For instance, in Puerto Rico a few years ago during the hurricanes, we deployed hundreds of satellite services throughout the island, both commercially and in support of FEMA's efforts. and. In the absence of terrestrial ground uh, infrastructure that was working, satellite was really critical. All right. Well, Tony, thank you so much. Nice chatting with you. Thank you, Mimi. Nice chatting with you. Thanks for listening. Our daily show is produced by Catherine Roloff. Our managing director is Jerry Foley. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.